Welcome to 60 Weeks, 60 Books, Week 12, and a sneaky peek at the most contentious book on my list so far. At school, in a Nissen hut, we had a bookshop where I spent hours. It stocked a small, strange collection of easy reading. Barbara Cartland, Neville Shute, Nicholas Montserrat. I think it was there that I picked up my first copy of Gone with the Wind at some point in 1977. From the arresting opening, the book gripped me as fiercely as the ancient mariner manhandles his chosen wedding guest. We are first introduced to Scarlett O'Hara, not beautiful, green-eyed, turbulent, willful, lusty with life, and 16 years old, only three years older than I was when I first cracked the spine of the fattest book I'd ever bought. Scarlett has to be one of the most toxic women in literature. But scene by scene, chapter by chapter, however appalling she is, however toe-curling her misdeeds are, she is utterly compelling. Imagine having the confidence at 16 to tell the young man you fancy that he shouldn't be marrying his cousin but you, nobody else but you. Imagine getting kissed senseless by a disgraceful man twice your age. Imagine getting married, widowed and having your first child by the age of 17. To a girl immured in an all-female boarding school, responding to the rhythms and routines that seemed the same unending day after unending day, Scarlett's life of flirtation and fine clothes is immediately utterly alluring. I had already seen the film some years before. It, like The Sound of Music, which I first saw around the same age of nine or ten, was a film through which I sat stony-eyed. My mother was astonished. She had wept her way through the movie the first time she had seen it at some point in the 1950s, and it exerted a strange pull on her when we went to see it together. I loved the sweeping landscapes, the immense shots of Atlanta, the high drama. But at nine or ten, I was icked out by the kissing. And even then, I definitely felt some degree of discomfort about the depiction of Mammy and Big Sam and the other slaves. The two, uh, Mammy and Big Sam are the two most prominent slaves of Tara, freed midway through the story, but still bound to Tara and Scarlet by bonds which seemed questionable to me even then. Unlike The Sound of Music, which is a movie I have come to love and I'm happy to watch again, I've only sat through Gone with the Wind a second time in the 50 or so years since I first saw it. But the book was different. Mammy is less compliant and more critical of Scarlet. The characters seemed deeper and richer than the film depictions, and the details of Scarlet's headlong misadventures far more shocking and astounding than the screen version. Her transgressive nature is much more powerful in print, unmitigated by the porcelain beauty of Vivian Lee. I loved the book. I loved Scarlet. At that stage, she was everything I wanted to be. Cynical, manipulative, determined, capable, and usually ferocious, furious, and utterly uninterested in what anyone else thinks of her decisions. Scarlet's drive to survive adversity delivers a strong message, especially to an insecure child beginning to navigate the complexities of adolescence. 
Scarlett's absolute disregard for convention and conformity were massively attractive. It has to be said, Scarlett's taste in men did seem to me disastrous, from Ashley Wilkes through to Rhett Butler. Ashley is a milk toast of the first order, an embodiment of a phony chivalry. Charles Hamilton, the brother of Ashley's true love and Scarlett's only champion, Melanie Hamilton, is a cipher, appearing briefly to marry and impregnate Scarlett before dying ignominiously, not on the battlefield, but of measles. Then there is the ghastly Frank Kennedy. Kennedy has been wooing Scarlett's whining little sister, Sue Ellen, but cold-bloodedly, Scarlett steals him, secures him as a husband, and promptly wrings the necessary money out of him to pay the taxes for Tara, the family plantation, under threat from Yankee carpetbaggers. Frank's susceptibility is also his death sentence. Having rescued Tara, Scarlet is determined never to be poor again and discovers a shrewd business instinct. As well as running Frank's store properly, she buys a sawmill, seeing the potential at a time of reconstruction. But the sawmill runs past a questionable part of town. Scarlet is attacked on her way to the sawmill one evening and is saved by Big Sam, a former Tara slave. But Frank, accompanied by his companions in the Ku Klux Klan, is determined to avenge her honour and ends up dead from a gunshot wound during a raid on the shantytown. Lurking in the background is Rhett Butler, the one man who truly sees Scarlet as she is. No lady, despite wishing more than anything to be seen as a lady. A survivor, determined not to let adversity stop her achieving her goals, and like him, irked by the constraints and demands of the South's hypocritical social standards. He sees her, and he loves her, even though she is brutal and calculating, self-serving and solipsistic. And even though we see Butler for what he is, a bootlegger, a con artist, amoral, opportunistic, we also know that he is the only man for Scarlet and the only man for us as readers. Part of the power of Gone with the Wind is that in a world where it is almost impossible to know another's heart, Rhett does know Scarlet and still loves her, loves her for her flaws, not in spite of them. Then even he is broken. First, by the terrible timing that Scarlet and he display in their relationship, and then by the death of their spoiled daughter, Bonnie, impulsive, exquisite, and just as determined as her mother to have her own way. And finally, he goes and leaves Scarlet. The ending of Gone with the Wind is famous, justly so, for Rhett's harsh rejection of Scarlet's avowal of love. Frankly, my dear... I don't give a damn. And then, for her utter refusal to accept his dismissal, she will go to Tara. She will regroup because, after all, tomorrow is another day. It is a brilliant ending. It breaks the rules of historical romance, which usually demands a happy ever after. But it is entirely true to its protagonists and their frenzied battle. It is open-ended and decisive. It sums up the best qualities of a book which is ultimately a lament for the well-deserved death of a corrupt society. 
and it made me reread the book so many times that at least one copy fell apart and several others were confiscated by my exasperated parents who wanted me to move on to meteor, better stuff. I knew then, and I know now, that the depiction of the Confederate South is far more flawed than Scarlet herself, that it is not an accurate, true depiction of either the society or the history behind the Civil War and its outcomes. It is wildly partisan, actively racist and depicts a world that was largely a fantasy constructed by Margaret Mitchell based on the biased tales recounted to her by her own grandmother. But, but, Mitchell achieves exactly what great novels manage, even if they are not great literature. She draws us into the world she builds. Her characters seem real and true, even when they are spec spectacularly self-sacrificing, like Melanie, or self-serving, like Scarlet and Rhett. And she keeps us hooked by taking Scarlet from a spoilt ingenue to an adult with a capacity to make her own way, regardless of the follies she commits. The moment, 12 years on from the start of the book, when she realises that if she had ever understood either of the men she believes she loved she would never have remained so obstinately smitten by Ashley Wilkes, and she would never have lost Rhett Butler, is triumphant. Scarlet is on her own again, and we know, whether she recaptures Butler's heart or not, this is the true message of the book. Bad stuff happens. Terrible, horrible, no good stuff. But the Scarlets of this world stand up, dust themselves down, and know that tomorrow will be another day. This is not a book I would rec recommend to the many 13 to 14-year-olds I have taught over the years. I'm not sure I would recommend it to anyone now. But I am very glad that I read it and loved it and reread it so often. I never had a 17-inch waist, or the capacity to charm every man in 40 miles, or the illusion that I was in love with a man who clearly didn't merit that love. What instead I learnt from Scarlet was the capacity to accept that even if things are at rock bottom, there will come the opportunity to restart, rebuild, and perhaps triumph in the end. Join me next week when we will delve a little deeper into the world of romance and encounter the moment when I discovered my very first Mills and Boone in amidst a bunch of lacrosse sticks. Mm -hmm.